Good morning to you. Have you ever heard the one about a feud between a certain pastor and his choir director? Uh, the first sign of trouble came on a Sunday when the pastor preached on Christian commitment, but the choir director chose to end the service with the hymn, I Shall Not Be Moved. <laughs> Hoping it was a coincidence, the pastor preached the following Sunday on giving, to which the choir director amended the bulletin with, Jesus paid it all. Realizing there was a mutiny brewing, the pastor preached on gossip, and the choir director again amended the bulletin, ending the service with, I love to tell the story. At this point, there was no denying the internecine warfare, so the pastor told the congregation at the conclusion of the next week's message that unless something changed, he was considering resigning. And the congregation gasped when the choir director led them to a very obscure hymn, Why Not Tonight? Seeing the handwriting on the wall, no one was surprised when the pastor resigned the following Sunday, and so he explained to the congregation that Jesus had led him to them, and now Jesus was leading him away, to which the choir director had everyone sing, what a friend we have in Jesus. Uh, such stories are funny because there is sort of a sad tinge of truth in them. This Sunday, uh, we are in 1 Corinthians 1 verses 10 to 17, and this Sunday and next, we will be exploring the, the trinity of Christian unity. And friends, this is a crucial subject for every church to thoroughly explore, but also to enthusiastically embrace. For we live in a fallen world where it's very easy to fragment into our factions based on our personal preferences. And so with this in mind, I'd like for you to turn together with me in Scripture to 1 Corinthians 1, beginning at verse 10. And uh, if you don't have a copy of Scripture with you, please reach out and grab the Blue Pew Bible in front of you. should be on page 1210, 1210 of the Blue Pew Bible, 1 Corinthians 1.10. As we turn to the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time together today. Lord Jesus, we invite you as Lord of this church to speak like a lion from your word. We pray that you would speak with great clarity. I pray that I might proclaim this truth clearly as I should. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would, all that we've sung about, that we would be one, that you would bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Lord, the church in Corinth was shattered and its witness was tattered because they were always jockeying for position instead of lifting up Jesus and fading into the background at the foot of the cross. Lord, help us to learn the lessons that you've put in Scripture that we wouldn't have to bear the discipline that comes when we stray and do it our own way, that our witness wouldn't be extinguished, that our bonds of love wouldn't be frayed. And Lord, I pray that not just our unity, but also the centrality of our mission would come forth with clarity today. The church can be about many things. It can be about many good things, but the main thing must not be left behind. We must always endeavor to make the main thing the main thing. So help us to zero in on that. I thank you for how a slender seven verses in the greeting section speaks right to the heart of our realities. That the least stroke of the pen, every jot and tittle is inspired by you, that no prophet 
wrote from his own mind, but he was moved by your Holy Spirit. Therefore, all Scripture is useful for correcting, reproof, encouragement, that we might be thoroughly equipped to be the people that you have called us to be. Lord, we pray that you would shape and change us through feeding us this morning. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So the Word of God says in 1 Corinthians 1, beginning at verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and with the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, well, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Wait a minute. Verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I I don't know whether I baptized anyone else there in Corinth. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Friends, I don't know how intimately acquainted you are with 1 Corinthians, but I hope that through our study you become intimately acquainted. But what you need to understand is 1 Corinthians has a very simple structure. It isn't a whole bunch of random happenstances. There are six chapters in direct answer to the questions that Chloe's people bring to Paul. There are problems and she brings them. And then there are ten chapters thereafter of questions the Corinthian church leadership has for Paul. How do we deal with these things? And so we're in the first six chapters and we're dealing with the problems that are reported by Chloe's people. Now, Chloe's people basically say there are two problems. There's significant infighting among and serious immorality within the Corinthian congregation. Evidently, Chloe is is a respected person at the church. More than likely, she was a wealthy saint who had a large home where several of the church gatherings would meet. Because you have to remember, in the first century, the church didn't have buildings, facilities. They met in people's homes. The people with larger homes could host more people. And so Chloe probably was one of those people with means that God used to use her means to have the church meet the need of assembling. And so Chloe's people were the people that gathered in the Corinthian house church at her house. And they said, Paul, we have a problem within our wider church. We have serious infighting, dividing along cults of personality. Now the actions of these factions weakened the wider witness for Jesus of the church in Corinth. And so Paul meets this challenge head on by highlighting keys to attaining and maintaining Christian community in spite of our diversity and despite our own depravity. You see, we're different, and sometimes Satan makes us focus on our differences, and we're also sinners, and sinners, when sinned against, tend to respond sinfully, which means in churches, like everywhere else, hurt people tend to... Yeah, do you see how that works? He likes to get the ball rolling, and he just needs... 
one. So the first thing that we always remember when we think about the trinity of Christian unity over these two Sundays is, first of all, the need for unity. Uh, Churches do not put enough emphasis on unity. I'm teaching a preaching class, and several men are preaching in several other passages, and several of them, this theme comes up in their passage. Because if you read the New Testament, this is a clarion call said again and again in Scripture. And it is the very area that the Church of North America in 2019 very often fails in. And there's a reason for that. Because the enemy wants to shatter our unity. And so Scripture wants us to remember as we start this letter of God's messy grace project in a difficult place, turning uh, uh, worldly sinners into heavenly saints, that the place we need to start is in our heart, and it's being of one mind and one spirit, being one. Unity is foundational among God's people. It was what our Lord prayed for us before the cross as He prayed that long night at Gethsemane for you and me. Do you remember what He prayed for? In John 17, 23, Jesus prayed that they, us, the church, may be perfectly... Not that we kind of get along or tolerate each other, that we would be perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. That is, that as the church is showing something that the world can't do, which is making unity out of diversity and depravity, as we do that, the world sees something that it doesn't have. Jesus. And when we fail to do that, they generally don't see the Jesus that we are trying to proclaim. Now we see this not just in the New Testament, we see it in the Old. If Jesus was the Son of God, and this is what he prayed, uh, David was the man of God. He's a man after God's own heart. He's the greatest earthly king in the history of God's people. And David begins Psalm 133 with this, with a call to unity among God's people when he famously writes, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in... He doesn't say when brothers dwell apart... It's not hard to get along if you don't have to get together. When brothers dwell together in unity. Old Testament, New Testament, David and Jesus. Now, think about the church at Ephesus. Ephesus is sitting in the very epicenter of occult worship in the ancient world. People would come from all over the ancient world to buy magical scrolls, curses really, to put on other people. It was a a very wicked, occultic place. And it was a church that desperately needed to put on the full armor of God because they were getting the, the full assault from hell. And so the Holy Spirit moves the pen of Paul to that church and says, you need this. In Ephesians he writes, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. When you're facing a full-on satanic onslaught, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. God's church is supposed to be where God's goals are most clearly seen in a world ravaged most brutally by the fall. It is among God's people that God's will ought to be done on earth as it is in. If there's anywhere that ought to look like a little slice of God's kingdom, it ought to be where Jesus is supposed to be, the king. 
Okay, so what is the ultimate goal if we're to have on earth what is in heaven? Well, in Ephesians 1.10, the Bible says the ultimate goal is this. This is the ultimate goal of the plan of God. When the times have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and in earth under one head, Jesus Christ. God's ultimate goal is to bring heaven and earth together under Jesus in unity. And his microscopic goal right now is to give a hint of that through the church. Unity ought to be the hallmark, the calling card, what we are known for as God's people. But that isn't always the case, is it? Unity ought to be the hallmark of God's people. So let me tell you, Satan will work overtime, all the time, to do all that he can, wherever he can, however he can, using whoever he can to thwart Christian unity because he knows how powerful a witness it is for Jesus. Perhaps no other strategy uh, is as effective at being destructive to our witness as breaking a church's unity. Perhaps no other wile of the devil is as powerful in keeping a church ineffective and unproductive as a church shattered by unity. Think in your mind and think of a church you know that's shattered on its unity question. And then ask yourself, how effective were they in that period for Jesus? And the answer is probably zero. Probably zero effective. Friends, this is the sad fact of the Corinthian church in our text today. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1.10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and with the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. They weren't the opposition, but they were the problem. My brothers. Paul says there were divisions among them. Now the original Greek text uses the word schismata, from which we get our word schism. Schismata in the Gospels is used twice, and it's used of tearing apart a garment. Think about that imagery. That's the imagery the Holy Spirit is using in this church. What was supposed to be seamless in Jesus was now torn asunder by petty personal preferences and fleshly factionalism. In verse 11, Paul says that there's, there's quarreling. Quarreling is the Greek word eredes. It's what the ancient Greeks used to describe battle strife. There's battle strife in the church at Corinth. It, it also means raucous rivalry that I've got to be up higher so I'm going to have to stand on you to get there. Boy, we've never seen that in the church, right? I wonder what that looks like. It's hard. We'll have to think hard. Um, eredes. It encompasses both domestic and political strife. You think politics is rough? Go to rocky marriages. <laughs> That's the word, my friends, arades. The Holy Spirit uses arades in other passages of Scripture. The Holy Spirit uses it in Galatians 5.20. And it is used by God to describe the flesh that opposes everything God is seeking to do in a person, a situation, or a congregation. Galatians 5 says this, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, irades, strife, 
jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things of the like. Now, if you went to a church and the church was struggling with drunken orgies, you go, maybe we should go to Second Baptist, right? And, and if you go and you visit First E3 and, and it's rank with sexual immorality and impurity and sensuality and sorcery, you go, maybe, maybe we should see what the, what, you know, the congregational church is doing. But, you know, we can go to church and we can see churches full of jealousy, strife, fits of rage, rivalry, dissension, and division, and we go, okay, that seems normal. It's not! Sin destroys your witness. It is the work of the flesh. It is what Satan wants in the church. But we have become so willing to tolerate less than Jesus is best that we think this is normal. Factionalism, fomenting divisions in our churches, is not some slight disturbance or mild inconvenience, according to Jesus. Biblically speaking, factionalism is a flesh fest, according to Galatians. It is a monstrance encumbrance to our witness and a cancer to our koinonia. You don't love one another if you're busy sinning against one another or talking about one another's sinning. This is the exact opposite of what the fruit of the Spirit is, my friends. When you read Galatians 5, it doesn't just say these are the bad things, the work of the flesh, days, but it also says, Galatians 5.22, the, the work of the Spirit. This is what, when God's Spirit is working in a church, when God's Spirit is working in a person, when God's Spirit is working in a congregation, here's what it looks like. The, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. You want what you want, I want what I want, and none of that matters. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Their ministry has more resources. They have more prominence. I want to see this happen. This is the way I like this to be. That's not the way God wants it to be. And that's not the way a biblical church will permit it to be. So the Corinthian church has degenerated into a flesh fest. And how did it happen? Well, they put their eyes on men instead of the Son of Man. That's very clear in our story. In chapter 2 and verse 5 of the book of Corinthians, the Bible tells us in chapter 2 and verse 5, they were trusting in the wisdom of men instead of the wisdom of God. In chapter 3 and verse 21, it tells us they were glorifying in the works of men instead of on the work of Christ. In chapter 4 and verse 6, it tells us they were comparing one servant with another instead of focusing on their Redeemer. Uh, they were boasting about their preacher instead of about their Savior. There were at least four camps in this conflict, specifically cited that we know of based on the text. In verse 12, the Bible says, What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, first camp. I follow Apollos, second camp. I follow Cephas, third camp. I follow Christ fourth camp. Now, let's just help you if you're, if you're new. Cephas is the Aramaic word for Peter. Okay? So there's a group that louds the Apostle Peter. There's a group that louds the Apostle Paul. There's a group that louds the eloquent Apollos. And there's one that says, I'm above all this. I just follow Jesus. And that sounds really spiritual until you see he never praises them. Notice Paul doesn't commend any of these factions. And it suggests that the slogan, well, we follow Christ, is really just a PR campaign saying that we're above this fight, but they were just as much in the fight. They just had a better slogan. <laughs> they had that holier-than-thou attitude that their way is the only way. 
I want you to notice that Paul doesn't celebrate the fact that he has a following. He finds the very prospect galling as you read his story. Paul views his veneration as uncomfortable, as unbiblical, and as antithetical as all that he sought to faithfully have taught. It's been well said, my friend, that the way to divine light is to put out your own candle. Say that again. The way to divine light is to put out your own candle. Recognizing that one of the factions in the church centered on him, Paul did not hesitate to single out his own fan club for special rebuke in verse 13. Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Friends, we must never be in competition with Jesus Christ. Amen? Instead, we must take a page from John the Baptist. Jesus must increase. And I must decrease. And I must... Let's say that together, shall we? Jesus must... And I... Yeah. No human lever... Not even an apostle should be given loyalty that belongs only to the Lord Jesus. I love Martin Luther on this. Uh, when the great reformer heard that people were calling those he ministered to as Lutherans, he was infuriated. And he said, quote, What is Luther? This teaching is not mine. How did I, poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, you kind of get a view of his view, uh, come to the point when people call the children of Christ by my evil name, Luther? See, a true man of God doesn't want to follow. He wants the king to be who's followed. And i got to tell you, in 2019, that's a far cry from our cult of celebrity that's crept into our churches. Amen? Paul was never so small as to seek to elevate himself over Jesus. He always sought to put the spotlight and the limelight on Jesus Christ right where it belongs. Paul is the one in Colossians who tells the church this. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, uh, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. And in everything, Jesus, Jesus must be preeminent. Paul knew it was treason to make anything other than Jesus the reason for why we worship. Okay, so, so why were these factions fomenting in the church? Good question. Well, part of it is bound up in the heart of man, in the human condition. It's how we're wired as fallen creatures. I don't know if you've noticed this, but we easily will sort ourselves out into cliques. You can go to the school playground and the kids that have the Avengers lunchbox go over here and the kids with the DC lunchbox go over there. Like, we'll just start to sort. They'll sort by gender. They'll sort by color. They'll sort by income. They'll sort. We just sort. We don't have to tell the children to do this. They'll do this. Adults do the same thing. We never outgrow this. This is part of who we are in our uh, fallen condition. We will sort ourselves out normally, naturally, along lines of race and class and income and education and location and vocation and denomination. Amen? It's true. In this case, in Corinth, they were sorting themselves based on which preacher they liked better. Now, Paul had been their founding pastor. So the charter members, the original Corinthian church, right? We're charter members at First Corinthian. Uh, they remember Paul as a shining light in a city of darkness, proclaiming the truth of God, bringing the first people to faith, how the gospel 
came to their city through Paul, and they thought a lot of that, and rightly they should. Now, who was their next pastor? Their next pastor was Apollos. And Apollos was, was brilliant and eloquent, and no doubt many people loved him for it. He was a great preacher. Now, you can almost hear them say, remember the good old days when God sent us Apollos? I can still remember how he turned a phrase. And then apparently Peter came. Peter came to Corinth, and, and he ministered for a season. And, and you got to remember, Peter was the pillar of the church, Scripture says. Jesus called him the rock. A moniker that came straight from the Savior. And so some had to think that having Peter as pastor was a particular plus and a point of great status. And additionally, remember, Peter's the apostle to the Jews. And so perhaps Corinthian believers of Jewish background felt the most comfortable unto Peter. Unlike Paul, who was the apostle to the Gentiles. Kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I'm glad he brought the gospel, but I'm also glad he moved on. Consider the comments, starting at verse 17, of these allegiances based on our preferences. And I think the answer is they were dividing based on their preferred preaching style. You see, Paul was a titan of the logical and the theological. Paul clearly saw and could amply explain how every situation was an opportunity for us to give glory to God in our response to that situation. But Apollos, Apollos was always winsome so he could win some. Apparently, Apollos could, could leave you in a daze with the way he turned a phrase. If Paul was technical, Apollos was memorable. Apollos was quotable, and his preaching was unforgettable. And then there was Peter. Peter was just a simple fisherman. Uh, uh, unschooled, but an actual eyewitness to Jesus. Peter's preaching, based on what we have recorded in the book of Acts, is, is sort of earthy and direct. It's not polished and refined. It's not heavy theological and logical. It's just earthy and direct. But of all the preachers, Peter, Peter alone could pepper his sermons with firsthand stories of Jesus in the three years they were together. And those are pretty important illustrations, right? Why, well, he walked with Jesus. Can you see how saints in their flesh would gravitate to one preacher over the other, depending on how they're wired? Now, in our flesh, if I like one guy, you must be wrong in liking the other. If my baloney has a first name, O-S-C-A-R, then I'm going to tell you what, your Hillshire Farm sliced ham is inferior. Because that's what human nature tells me. In our flesh, we easily focus on what divides us instead of forgetting what unites us. It reminds me of the story of a guy who is coming home from work and he sees a man about to jump off a bridge. And so the first fellow shouts, hey buddy, don't do it. And the guy says, why not, as he's about to jump. And he says, he says, nobody loves me. And the man says, well, well, well God loves you. And, and, and do you believe in God? And the guy's like, he pulls back a little and he says, well, yeah, I believe in God. And so the, the, the good Samaritan comes closer and says, well, well, are you a Christian? And the other man said, yeah, I, I'm a Christian. And the, and the man said, well, well me too. Are you, are you Protestant or are you Catholic? And he inches closer to try and pull the guy from the railing, right? He's, he's having this conversation. Me too, Protestant or Catholic? And the jumper says, well, Protestant. And he says, well, me too. Uh, what denomination? 
And the guy says, Baptist. He says, well, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? And he says, Northern Baptist. And the guy says, me too. And he's inching closer and closer to get close to grab him. And he says, Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? And the guy says, Northern Conservative Baptist. And the guy says, me too. And now they're getting really close. He can pull him in. And he says, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern region? And the man says, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region. Which the man says, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879? Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? The man says, well, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912, to which the Good Samaritan says, die, heretic! <laughs> and pushes him off the bridge. In similar manner, in first century Corinth, the traditionalists who had a more conservative bent on Jewish matters would probably say, I follow Cephas. Libertines who loved their freedom would say, but I follow Paul and the refined who pined for rhetorical eloquence and homiletic excellence would say, you're both wrong, I follow Apollos. And the super spiritual would derisively and dismissively tut-tut at everyone, I just follow Jesus. Now we all have our preferences for a particular preacher. Now that's natural, that's unavoidable, that in itself is not sinful. But this is where the Corinthians got in trouble. The Corinthians in their flesh were highlighting the messenger over the message. And that's crazy. That's crazy because Paul and Apollos and Cephas and Jesus, they didn't have a different message. They didn't. Paul tells us in chapter 16 that he urges Apollos to visit the Corinthians. That's hardly something you would do if Paul and Apollos were in conflict. Uh, in Galatians 2, Paul calls Peter, Cephas, the pillar of the church. That's hardly a statement you would make if you had fundamental disagreement with that individual. Uh, Peter writes in 2 Peter 3 that he not only reads Paul's letters, but that he regards them as scripture. Again, they're not in conflict. The factionalism in the church is coming from the immaturity of the followers, not from the pulpit. So how does Paul approach this schism? by calling them back to the unity of their identity. He says in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers. I appeal to you, brothers. And again in verse 11, For it has been reported to me by closed people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Not my hearers. My brothers. The family of God. We're the family of God. We are followers of Jesus. We are not followers of particular preachers. Listen again to verse 13. Was Paul crucified for you? What's the answer to that? No. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? What's the answer to that? No. If you ever wonder whose church this is, I want you to remember who went to the cross for you. It wasn't the evangelical free denomination that died on the cross for you. It wasn't Calvary that died on the cross for you. It certainly wasn't me. This is whose church? Jesus' church. Jesus' church. It was Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross for us. It was Jesus who is the only name under heaven by which we may be saved. And so it is to Jesus that all glory and honor and praise is due. I want you to listen again to Paul's pointed question. Because I think we miss it. I want you to hear it. Is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? Friends, when Christ is divided, who bleeds? 
Our factionalism tears apart Jesus' visible body to the watching world. Our factionalism silences our witness and shuts down our love for one another. Friends, factionalism is for fools. Unity is for Christians. Factionalism is for fools. Unity is for Christians. Understand that we will never get to unity if we fixate on our differences. There's a movement today in Christian circles that we're going to have uh, this group's Sunday and this group's Sunday and this group's Sunday, or we're going to go to this college campus and this group is going to be elevated in this group, and we fixate on our diversity and we wonder why we can't maintain our... And you know what you should fixate on? Jesus. Jesus unites disparate people. Our differences divide disparate people. We are unlikely to come together if we fixate on our differences. Fixating on our gender or our nationality or our gifts or our preferences or how long we've been in a certain church or whatever, that will divide us. Fixating on Jesus. Fixating on Jesus. Fixating on Jesus is what unites us. Too often the modern church and the desire for unity puts the emphasis on diversity, but God in Scripture always puts the emphasis on what unites us, not what divides us. He puts the emphasis on Jesus. And so must we. I appeal to you, brothers, verse 10, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, not for the effectiveness of your service or the smooth running of the church, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, the second equally clear issue today is our second point in our sermon today, and it's the need for centrality. We have a need for unity, we have a need for centrality, and next week we'll look at the third in the trinity of Christian unity. I want to talk about the need for centrality. Uh, this centrality is seen in two ways. First of all, as we've already seen, that Jesus must be the locus of our focus, or we have no business in this. In addition to the centrality of the person of Christ, Paul points us to the centrality of the mission of Christ. Why are we here? Why do we have a church? Is it for the music? Is it for the minister? Is it for the denomination? And the answer is we're here to fulfill Jesus' mission. He came to what? Seek and save the lost. And He's commissioned us to go and be His witnesses and make disciples. That's the mission. The mission of Christ is to proclaim the, the, the gospel of Christ and then build people into a people for Christ. Paul never for a moment forgot to keep the main thing the main thing. But the Corinthian church did. We see this centrality in his ministry very clearly in verses 14 and 17. Verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Christmas and Gaius. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to do what? To preach the gospel. Paul wasn't against baptism. He knew that it was part and parcel with our Lord's commission. Jesus Christ said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all I've commanded. He's not against baptism, but he says baptism isn't the main deal. It would appear, if you read the text carefully and closely, that Paul delegated the necessary but lesser task of baptism to newly converted leadership within the Corinthian congregation. He probably handed it to the elders within the new church plant. Let me show you how we know that. Paul says, I only baptized two people. Wait a minute, I think there was a third. That's all he could come up with for the whole time he was there. Okay? 
You know who he took a page from in this ministry? The Lord Jesus Christ. Write John 4, 2 down next to those two verses. John 4, 2. Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Baptism was essential, but it wasn't essential to the ministry of Jesus. He had others that he was raising up do the other things so he would be freed up to do what he was supposed to do. Friends, in Christian leadership, it is essential that we only do what only we can do. And we must learn to delegate as much as we can, as fast as we can, to as many as we can, because discipleship is equipping others. Ephesians 4.12 says God has gifted his body with shepherds and teachers for one reason, to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. In God's design, who is the army of God? You. And, and who's the drill instructor to help you be ready for combat? Who's the cheerleader when, when, when you've fallen and scraped your knee? I don't want to do that anymore. Rah, rah, sis, boom, bah, bugs, bunny, bugs, bunny. You know, that's me. I'm here to help you go out there, take the armor of God, take the word of God, and be a child of God because you're on mission for God. And you will do more than I could do. There's 200 of you. And you are embedded in places I cannot go. You might be the only Christian in your workplace. And that's on purpose. So that you can shine for Jesus in a wicked and depraved generation. We're to equip others. Equip the saints to do the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. The fact that Paul only remembers baptizing Crispus and Gaius and Stephanus is significant. In 1 Corinthians uh, 16, 15, Paul tells us, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Acacia and that they had devoted themselves to the service of the saints. So the Bible tells us, Corinthians tells us, 1 Corinthians 16, 15, one of the first people that came to Christ was one of the guys he baptized. Do you know why he baptized him? Because there was nobody else to do it yet. Somebody had to baptize him. Baptism was essential. There weren't any other leaders in the church, so he baptized him. He baptized Stephanus. Acts 18.8 tells us Crispus was another initial and pivotal convert when it says in Acts 18.8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed. So it's one of the first people to come to Christ was a synagogue ruler, and then he began to delegate Baptism to those new believers who are showing leadership potential. And, and Gaius may well be among Paul's companions at the riot in Ephesus mentioned in Acts 19. The Bible says in Acts 19.29, So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together to the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Greek people. This is in Greece, right? This is the isthmus that gets you around the Peloponnesian Peninsula, connecting Greece, uh, Acacia, with the wider Mediterranean. Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions. So why do you think he baptized them? Because there wasn't anybody else to do it yet. And as soon as he raised up people, he gave that task over so he would focus on what he was built to do. It would seem that Paul only baptized folks until others were equipped to take that task onto their own plate. Indeed, it would seem that Stephanus, Crispus, and Gaius were the early converts who became pivotal leaders who were pressed into vital service for Jesus in various ways over the coming days. Nonetheless, Paul put the centrality in his life to preach the gospel. Look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. 
He had to keep the main thing, the main thing, the most important thing. The propagation of the gospel is the most important thing. Our main mission is not to have the best worship production, nor the biggest or newest programs. Our main mission as a congregation is to put forth the gospel and then make disciples of those who hear and believe. The extension of the gospel and the subsequent making of disciples is our number one priority. And everything else is less. Everything else is less. Friends, we could administer this church so much better if we put all of our energy in having this super smooth running and we won't share the gospel. We can have the greatest choir, children's program, whatever. And, but we cannot let the gospel and discipleship take a second seat to being excellent at something we want instead. Now I want to just take a little excursus for a moment. It's worth noting that Paul makes a sharp distinction in our passage between the false doctrine of baptismal regeneration and the biblical gospel of salvation. There are some folks you will meet who will say you must be baptized in order to be saved. That would make salvation a work. This is a work you have to complete. I want you to look closely at this text because, friends, the Scripture teaches we are baptized because we have believed. It is not we are saved by being baptized. Look at this text closely, just for a moment, a little excursus. How do we know baptismal regeneration is unscriptural? Well, look at 1 Corinthians 1, 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. There's a difference between baptizing and what? The gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied. What is the gospel? It's Christ on the cross for your sin. The atoning work of Jesus is what redeems us. Baptism isn't the gospel. It follows those who follow the gospel. The gospel is the cross of Christ and our need for faith in Christ. The atoning work of Jesus is what redeems us. And so that must be the locus of our focus is always pointing people back to Jesus. And so friends, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, Let's go tell it on the mountain and over the hills and everywhere that Jesus Christ is Lord. To that end today, let us pray. Father, we ask that you would guard our unity, that you would keep us from ourselves, from our me-first-isms. You tell us that you give grace to the humble and you oppose the proud. You tell us that what causes fights and quarrels among you is it not that you want stuff and you're willing to use ungodly ways to get it. Sometimes we want good things. We want a certain ministry or a certain thing added to the facility or a, a thing that we think would advance the cause of Christ, but we make that thing the thing because it's our thing and then it's an idol and Satan starts to drive a wedge. And then, when we don't get our way fast enough, we, we start to speak behind people's backs, we, we start to develop a faction, we talk to our little group, and we start to get the numbers we need to mobilize, and we start to break the body of Christ. When, when there's division in the body of Christ, who bleeds? Jesus bleeds. We don't win, and He doesn't win. Help us to understand the difference between winning battles of our own, and losing the war for unity. Lord Jesus, we pray that you'd help us here at Calvary to keep your gospel central. 
May we make the main mission to make disciples. We understand that your grace is messy, that turning worldly sinners into heavenly saints is not always linear. It is not always rapid. It is not always easy, but it's always worth it. Lord, would you help us as a church to make disciples instead of mischief? May we remember this is Jesus' church and not ours. And if you're here today and you don't know this Jesus personally, you know about Jesus, I want to talk to you for just a moment with every head bowed and every eye closed. Friends, we're going to go through the book of Corinthians and you're going to see they were real people with real problems that even when they came to Christ, there was much in their life that needed to be changed because that's what God does. If you're looking at your life right now and you're saying, I'm empty, I'm hurting, there's something missing, and then you're looking at a Christian going, well, they're not perfect. Yeah, God is making us into what he wants us to be and that will be entirely true in eternity. But right now, he's willing to forgive you for everything you've ever done. He's willing to irrevocably adopt you as his child to make him your, his son or his daughter forever. The Bible says if you confess your sins that he's faithful and just and he not only forgives you, but he cleanses you. Others may point and say, look what you did. Look at your criminal record. Look at your wreckage. And that all may be true, but when you are in Christ, the Bible says you are a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Who can bring accusation against the Lord's people? Neither height, nor depth, nor angel, nor principality, nor government, nor anything can separate us from the love of God. But friends, knowing about God isn't knowing God. Jesus went to Nicodemus, and he was the teacher of the law. He was so schooled that everyone else looked to him for the answers. He was so godly that even though he was a Pharisee and they walked scrupulously and were largely derided by the Sanhedrin, uh, by, the, by the Sadducees, he was one of the very few Pharisees on the Sanhedrin. And so this man comes to Jesus at night and he asks what he must do to be born again. He asks how he can inherit eternal life. He asks, what do I do to make myself right with God? The teacher of the law looks at Jesus. And Jesus doesn't say, try harder. He doesn't say, know the word better. He doesn't say, clean yourself up more because the man standing before him was peerless. He was the teacher of Israel on the Jewish Supreme Court. He said, you must be born again. You must be born again. I pray, Lord, if there's someone here today who knows about you but doesn't know you and they're ready to receive you, that they want to give all they know of themselves into your lordship, into your hand, and, and you are willing to make him Lord and Savior, then you can pray with me just now. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone's in the same position. I'm in the same position, Grandma, the Pope, everybody. The Bible says that on our best days, our best deeds are filthy rags. We can't earn our way to God. The wages of sin is death. No matter how hard we try, we will never reach heaven on our rickety ladder of good works. We might get to the penthouse or the outhouse, but we'll get no farther. And we certainly won't get to the Father. And so God sent his Son. The distance between heaven and earth was too great, so he sent heaven to earth. And any who put their faith in Jesus Christ will be saved. If you want to do that, you can pray with me right here, right now, today. Father, forgive me, for I am a sinner. And I need a Savior. And I know Jesus is your one and only Son. I know Jesus is the only name under heaven by which we may be saved. And so I want to give my life to Jesus Christ today. Would you adopt me 
And would you begin to change me? Would you begin to make me look more and more like Jesus and less and less like me? Help me to have a holy boldness for Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.